You may be seated. Thank you, Alicia. Uh, welcome to Midtown Church. If this is your first time here, uh, my name is Alex. Uh, my wife, Cassie, uh, the wonderful worship leader today. Uh, here we get the joy and privilege of leading this little Jesus community. And uh, yeah, we're grateful you chose to worship with us today on this brutally cold November morning. Uh, I'm a Midwesterner, so I can always figure out how to get the weather in there somehow. Uh, that's all I know for small talk. Um, well, we are concluding our, I think we've been going through the Apostles' Creed for three or four months, and today we are concluding that journey. We've been walking through this ancient confession, this confession that orients our hearts around the narrative of Scripture, and today is our final day. I expected a little bit more celebration. Today's our final day. Uh, next week, we will jump into the Advent season as we prepare our hearts and we wait on our King. Uh, but, today, but today, we can conclude the creed. Uh, week after week, as we've walked through this ancient confession, we've been reminded that this community and our faith are rooted in something very ancient. Rooted in something that is not a cold analysis of ancient Near Eastern literature. We're reminded that this is our story. That when we say these words, this is our confession. That our allegiance and our faith belong to our God revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're reminded that though it is not Scripture it covers the full breadth of Scripture, from, from creation to resurrection, from incarnation to new creation. It goes from Genesis to Revelation. It covers the whole breadth. And today, our confession is, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. That is our confession. But oftentimes, that confession is mistaken for, I believe I will go to heaven when I die. These two things do not mean the same thing. If you remember back to early August, we talked about what it meant that our God is the creator of heaven and earth. And we talked about something known as the Gnostic heresy. If you remember, Gnostic can literally be translated to knowers. And it's an ancient philosophy that continues to materialize today. But basically, the premise of it is that the material world, earth, stars, water, grass, animals, people, and yes, even coffee, are evil. And that the spiritual is good. Gnosticism is spirit good, material world bad. The Gnostic worldview deals with the problem of evil pretty simply by just calling everything evil. For the Gnostics, salvation consists not of redeeming the material world, not of saving all that we know as good, but rather just simply of escaping it. And I would venture to say that when most are asked what Christianity is about, you would get an answer something like you're born on a planet called Earth and you do some stuff, some good, some bad, 
but you work to make sure your net worth of good is better than your net worth of bad. And depending on how well you did, God will send you to heaven or hell. This story centers on the misunderstanding that the earth, nature, and the human body have been so irredeemably corrupted that Jesus is leading a Navy SEAL-style rescue mission to take the important part of you, not your body, but your soul, to a cloud city in the sky called heaven. That story is much more Gnostic than it is Christian. But... It has wormed its way into the American consciousness. It has found its way into our popular media. And whenever I imagine heaven, it's probably something I saw in a Disney movie more than what's found on the pages of scripture. Ultimately, this story misses that God is not interested in taking us off to heaven but rather he is interested in bringing heaven to earth. We need a better story. We need a better hope. And the Christian story is just that. The Christian story is that the creator God has demonstrated in Jesus' resurrection what he intends to do for the whole world. We will be a new humanity, liberated from the tyranny of death and forever at home in the love of our God. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Our God will transform death from an ending into a new beginning. As with Christ, so with us. And this is the argument that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you've got your Bible, if you've got it on your phone, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We will spend a lot of time in this text. It's a letter Paul writes to a rowdy church that he knew pretty well. Uh, it would seem from the content of Paul's letter that in his absence, a set of corrosive practices had taken root in this church community. So he writes to address problems he's heard about. He hears about ideological divisions, sexual immorality, chaotic worship settings, and confusion around the resurrection. With each problem, Paul draws on the biography of Jesus to help them see that every facet of their life finds its meaning in the life of Christ. And in chapter 15, Paul makes a move and he turns his attention to the resurrection and mounts a defense against anyone who would suggest that the resurrection is a ridiculous idea or unnecessary for the Christian faith. At the beginning of the chapter, he opens by outlining Jesus' resurrection, the source of the Corinthians' faith. He says Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that Jesus was buried and that he was raised on the third day and he appeared to many witnesses. And then the rest of the chapter, he will go on to describe our resurrection the transformation of our bodies and our life in the everlasting kingdom. And these three ideas will serve as the check marks, the checkpoints as we map out the New Testament's understanding of resurrection and the life everlasting. This will be a little ethereal. 
This will be a little bit of working through the text line by line. But we can do this. I promise. Smile. Because all of you have like a dead face and it's really tough at times. (laughs) Smile at me a little bit. We're just talking about death and life everlasting. It's a fun subject, I promise. So we're going to go through this, uh, not quite line by line, section by section, talking about our resurrection, the transformation of our bodies, and the life everlasting. So picking up in verse 12 of chapter 15, this is what Paul writes. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. At some point in the Corinthian church, someone had begun to say, there is no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. And Paul says, if that's the case, then not even Jesus has been brought to life. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true then that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Even those that have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are to be the people most pitied. It would seem that some were suggesting that Jesus' bodily resurrection was foolish and unnecessary for Christian life. And Paul responds, arguing that if Christ did not return from the dead, then we are the most pitiful people he can imagine. For the apostles' work is worthless. Our faith is in vain. God has been misrepresented, and we are still in our sins, and there is no one to rescue us from the abyss of death. There is nothing on the other side of death but black. A void. For if Christ did not overcome death, neither will we. But Paul knew where an empty tomb was. He knew where to find the guards that stood watch that Easter morning. He knew 500 trustworthy men and women who saw a man that was once dead walking around. And he bore witness to the Christ himself on a road to Damascus. You don't convert to a religion you've been persecuting unless the evidence is overwhelming. Paul will continue in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Our inheritance from the first humans, Adam and Eve, is sin and death. But our inheritance in Christ is resurrection. For Easter morning is not a one-time occurrence, but a preview of our own resurrection. The Christian story is that tombs, cemeteries, morgues, and funeral homes will be emptied out. Our corpses 
in whatever state of decay, preservation, cremation will be reanimated, never again to be touched by death. Resurrection is always bodily. Resurrection is always flesh and bone. Resurrection is always skin and blood. Resurrection is always about the reversal of death. Now explaining how God plans to do this is well beyond my pay grade and a little bit above my qualifications. But if you email corbin at midtownkc.church, he'll give you a great explanation of how God plans to do this. I don't understand it. It's a mystery. Paul clearly articulates it's a mystery that he doesn't quite understand. But as God did with Christ, physically, bodily, materially raised from the dead, so he will do for us. Paul will then go on to describe that on that day we will be transformed, not into disembodied spirits like Casper, but into a new form of physicality. Now, I want to address something, because depending on your translation, as you work your way through the rest of the chapter, um, there are some maybe uh, miscues on the translation choices that I'm not a big fan of. Um, In verse 44 in particular, uh, the translation in the ESV is, it is sown a natural body, And it is raised a spiritual body, which would make you think ghosts and spirits and like not flesh and bone. Or in verse 50, flesh and bone cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And these translations do not at all do justice to what Paul is trying to call attention to. He's not drawing a distinction between physical forms and non-physical forms or flesh and spirit. Rather, he is drawing a distinction between our first form and our second form. Life before death and life after death. For when Jesus showed up walking around after the resurrection, he let the disciples touch the wounds in his hands. This was not something that they like went right through his appearance. He wasn't a ghost. He walked and he talked. He broke bread and made breakfast. He climbed a mountain and he was mistaken for a gardener. The disciples didn't say, oh no, a ghost. They recognized their teacher They saw him with their own eyes. He was flesh and bone. He was blood and breath. He was a body. Now, to be fair, Jesus does do some weird stuff when he shows up, like disappearing, walking through walls, and just ascending into the wherever. He does do some weird things. And the only way I know to describe it is I believe that we should understand that when the human body is glorified, when God perfects what he meant it to be, that we are transformed and freed from some of the previous limitations that we currently experience. Paul seems to think that however we come back from the dead, we will be far grander than the way we went into the ground. In fact, in verse 35 Paul compares our current body to a seed and a future plant. The two look nothing alike. Like a seed and a tree, totally different forms. Totally different. You would not think that comes from that. And Paul is kind of drawing a distinction. The two are the same thing, but they take different shapes. For that that seed to become the mighty oak it was meant to be, it must be buried. 
its frail form will be transformed into something more grand and more glorious than it ever was before. And this is the distinction Paul is making between our current form now and our resurrected form. For caterpillars cannot inherit the skies. Seeds cannot bear fruit. A transformation must take place. That our future is transformation. There's a lot more to it, and the New Testament has a lot of different ideas about it. But for the sake of time, I'll leave it at this. Our future is not as disembodied spirits. It is an embodied future where we are the very best version of ourselves. A glorified body not shaped by the whims of beauty standards, plastic surgeons, or fitness gurus, but by the God who shaped our planet and hung our sun. It will be a body not shaped by what we think it should be, but by what our God meant it to be. As only N.T. Wright could say it, he writes this in an incredible book on the subject called Surprised by Hope. He says, why will we be given new bodies? According to the early Christians, the purpose of this new body will be to rule wisely over God's new world. Forget those images about lounging around with and playing harps. There will be work to do, and we shall relish doing it. All the skills and talents which we have put to God's service in this present life, and perhaps too the interests and likings we gave up because they conflicted with our vocation, will be enhanced and ennobled and given back to us to be exercised in his glory. There will be a day come when all the skills we have learned in this present life will be continued to be used as God intended them to be used. Notice in Eden, Adam was given a job. Eve was given a job. This will not be an eternity of vacation. This will be an eternity of vocation, doing the things we have always wanted to do exercising our skills in new and imaginative ways. It is a far better future than what we've been sold. I was talking with Justin and Amanda right before and kind of talking about this. And I remember growing up in church and hearing descriptions of our eternity and descriptions of heaven of this cloud city. And like the only interesting thing you can do is like talk to historical figures. Like, why did you screw up in this way? Like, that's the most interesting part. And Hillsong will be on loop and we're just like... That sounds boring. And as a kid, I literally remember thinking, I've got stuff to do. Like, that doesn't sound interesting. And God's vision for eternity is far more beautiful than that. It is far more interesting, and it will involve the whole of our being flourishing. It is something to long for. It is something to yearn for. It is something to imagine. Paul goes on in verses 24 and 25. I love this. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The end will come. This is not a destruction of the world, but the end to the present order. It is God uniting heaven and earth. 
Now, when we read heaven in the scriptures, we should think God's presence, not a spiritual location. And when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, it is not like this far off cloud city. It is the space in which God's presence is most fully. Now, this will take time to refrain and retrain ourselves because most of us have grown up thinking about St. Paul standing at the pearly gates asking you, you know, why did you do that thing when you were 14? That is not the picture in the biblical text. Heaven is the space of God's presence. God is not interested in destroying the world he called good. He's interested in saving it. He's interested in redeeming what has been corrupted. He's interested in creating a new garden called earth. As John writes in his Revelation, chapter eleven, fifteen, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Christ will end the governments, power structures, and regimes of our day, and he will set up an everlasting kingdom where the last become first. It is a kingdom that belongs to those who do not have a penny to their name. It is a kingdom of comfort to those who have been crushed by the weight of the world. It is a kingdom of downward mobility, favoring the have-nots over the haves. It is a kingdom where those who ache for justice will be satisfied. It is a kingdom where the powerful strive not to be served, but to serve. It is an upside-down kingdom, a new world order under the leadership of Jesus. Listen, I enjoy so much about the nation we live in. I enjoy the city we reside in, but I look forward to a day in which the United States is replaced by the kingdom of God. I look forward to a day when the kingdoms of old, built upon corruption, greed, and manipulation, are overthrown and replaced by a kingdom of peace, justice, and love. When we're talking about the kingdom of God, it is not a cute way of saying we are fond of Jesus. It is to say Jesus is the king of the world, and we're just waiting for him to make his move. The kingdom of God is the space in which Jesus is in charge. And it will take place on our planet, on this continent, in this city, and in our backyards. There will be an amazing continuity between what we experience in this world and what we experience in eternity. There will be a discontinuity in that all that is corrupt and broken will be done away with. But there will still be trees. There will still be oceans. There will still be cities. There will still be people. There will still be the nature that God calls good. There will be an incredible continuity between this life and eternity to come, but it will be beyond our imagination and how God uses the material that he put here to create and shape a future he calls the kingdom. It will be a new creation overflowing out of the shell of the old. Our future is an everlasting kingdom, and in it we will be freed from the touch of death. Check out Eugene Peterson's brilliant paraphrase of verses 21 through 26. 
There's a nice symmetry in this. Death initially came by a man, and resurrection from death came by a man. Everybody dies in Adam. Everybody comes alive in Christ. But we have to wait our turn. Christ is first, then those with him at his coming. The grand consummation when, after crushing the opposition, he hands over his kingdom to God the Father. He won't let up until the last enemy is down. And the very last enemy is death. Let us not mince words, Jesus is at war with death. But he has bested it. He has dealt the fatal blow. He has entered the grave and come out victorious. Verse 54, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Our story is that one day God will defeat cancer. He will overcome dementia. He will cure every heart disease. Sickness and disease eradicated. The stormy seas will be calmed. Every wildfire quenched. We will give up on war. Our tanks turned into tractors and we'll get back to gardening. Every belly will be made full at the table of the Lord. Christ has gone first, overcoming death. And then at the right time, we, his followers, will be brought back to life. To never again know the sting of death. Death will be put to death. This is life everlasting. Where we will never again know the pain of a lost loved one where we will never know the sting of a cancer diagnosis. We will never again hear the news report of another mass shooting. There will be a day in which death has been put to death and life will be everlasting. Worship team, if you'll join me on the stage. As we've worked through the scriptures going through the Apostles' Creed, we've constantly been reminded of God's efforts to redeem his good world. In creation, God surveys his handiwork and he declares, it is good. In the incarnation of Jesus, it is the womb of a woman, the realities of pregnancy and the messiness of birth that brings our king into this world. It is the suffering of Jesus in which we are reminded that every moment in our world can be turned around. It is in the unjust death of Jesus our brokenness is dealt with once and for all. And this third stanza of our creed is a declaration of who we are now. We are the global church made up of forgiven saints and empowered by the presence of the Spirit. And it is an announcement of who we will be. The Christian story is that our creator God has demonstrated in Christ's resurrection what he intends to do for the whole world. We will be a new humanity liberated from the tyranny of death forever at home in the love of our God. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Our God is going to transform death from an ending into a new beginning. And I cannot imagine a more hopeful and wonderful conclusion to the Christian story. 
Yet many of us have failed to grasp the beauty of what is written in this text because we believed something less than the Christian story. As with Christ, so with us. May we once again foster a longing for our eternal kingdom. May we dream about what this world might look like when the right king is in charge and when death has been defeated. As I was preparing for this, I came across an essay from the one and only Tolkien. He has this beautiful little essay called On Fairy Stories. On Fairy Stories. And in it, he suggests that there are longings in every human that only fantasy, fairy tales, or science fiction can really speak to. Fitting that our question was about books and movies. He says we have this natural curiosity and fascination with cheating death, excuse me, with cheating death, escaping time, and friendship with other living things. We imagine living long enough to invent all the things in our head, to pursue all of our creative desires, to cultivate heaven on earth and discover a love that heals all wounds. Why? Why would we long for the infinite? Why would we long to cheat death when it is all we've ever known? Tolkien, the Lord of the Rings author, the world builder and the Christian, believed it was because we were not created for death, but to experience life everlasting. Deep down, we all know that this is not the way the world should be. This is not the way life is supposed to be. And now we await for the arrival of our true home. As Dallas Willard put it, we are built to live in the kingdom of God. It is our natural habitat. As we head into the Advent season, the whole season is about cultivating a longing for the arrival of our King. It is to wait with anticipation and expectation about the new world that He is bringing, a new world that only He can bring. It is to imagine a world in which death has been vanquished, in which we are invited to make ourselves at home in the love of our God. And so my suggestion this week is to imagine just that. As I've gone about rethinking my understanding of the kingdom, I have been surprised at my companions on the journey. I've been joined by the Chronicles of Narnia I've been joined by the Lord of the Rings. Heck, I've even been joined by a few X-Men comics. That there's something about engaging my imagination again and looking towards the future, a future like what's depicted in Wakanda, a future like what's depicted in Star Trek in which we can begin to just maybe catch a glimpse of what God is intending to do. These are not scriptural pictures by any any, any way. But they can begin to stir a longing for the future God has for us. Our future is not a cloud city filled with harps and a worship playlist on repeat. It is filled with new discovery. 
It is filled with cultivating this good world. It is filled with life without death, life everlasting. My invitation is to use every creative faculty at your disposal to imagine our future and then to realize God's imagination is even better. If we can come to accept the resurrection as not simply what happened to Jesus, but as our future too, there is no limit of the kind of things we can look forward to. It is to know deep down that we were made for eternity and life with our God. May we learn to long again for the everlasting kingdom. My invitation this week is as you're daydreaming, as you're going about life, as you're just thinking, begin to imagine that everlasting kingdom. Begin to imagine a world in which every creative endeavor you have ever wanted will be given the opportunity to be played out. May we learn to long for that everlasting kingdom, for the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as in Christ, so in us. As we go about this holiday week, busy with preparation, busy with travel, busy with seeing family, busy with small talk. I pray that there would be joy around the table. I pray that there would be good conversation, that we would be reminded of how good this life is that you've given us. And may it teach us to long for a day in which evil, corruption, injustice, cancer, disease, brokenness will be done away with altogether. May it be a reminder of the kingdom you are preparing for us and that our future is as resurrected people and life everlasting. It's in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.